Welcome, listeners, to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, the podcast dedicated to the lighter side of crime fiction. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host. On each episode, I interview an author writing cozy, traditional, or historical mysteries. You won't find mysteries with explicit sex or violence. You will find mysteries with high-quality writing, intriguing plots, and engaging characters. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host of the podcast. Valerie Burns, my first podcast guest way back in June of 2019, returns to the corner today to chat about two-part sugar, one-part murder, the first in the new Baker Street Mysteries. Welcome back, Valerie. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, the Baker Street Mysteries is your fourth mystery series, and it's going to be so much fun. So please introduce us to your new protagonist, Maddie Montgomery, and tell us what she's up to. Okay, so Maddie Montgomery is a young social media influencer who has lived out West. Her dad is a naval admiral, and her mom has passed, and Maddie has been living her social media influencing dream. And her highest aspiration was to marry a doctor and be a doctor's wife. So she had her doctor and they were on their way to the altar when she gets dumped. And she, but the wedding was being live streamed. So she's humiliated and she's looking for a place to hide. She just wants to find a rock to crawl underneath until all of the media attention drops away. And she finds that she has inherited a house, a bakery, and a 250-pound English Mastiff named Baby and in a small town in Michigan called New Bison. And she's never heard of New Bison, so she thinks it'll be the perfect place to go hide out. She will uh, sell the house and the bakery and the dog, and she will be able to come back in triumph. But her Aunt Octavia, her great Aunt Octavia, who she has inherited the um, property from, had other plans. And so she has stipulated that in order to inherit, Maddie has to live in the house and run the bakery and keep the dog for a year. So even though Maddie can't cook, she decides to give it a try. And not long after she gets there, she finds all these people want to buy her house and they want to buy the bakery. They even want to buy the dog. And so, but she can't sell and she gets so frustrated. She ends up arguing with one of the guys. And when he turns up dead the next day and her hands are all over, her fingerprints are all over the murder weapon. Well, then she's got to figure out who done it. Now, what inspired you to create a series about a social media influencer turned bakery owner? 
You know, um, I think a lot of things through the pandemic, um, watching a lot of uh, videos and actually chatting with a friend of ours, a mutual friend, Kelly Garrett. <laughs> and she's like, have you seen these outtakes from these, you know, bakery shows and these baking shows? Because I, you know, I, I love dogs. So there's usually always going to be a dog in one of my in one of my books. So the dog was a given. But um, and I, I like to cook most of the time. I found myself, especially when I'm procrastinating, I bake. I will bake everything. I bake granola. Today I'm going to bake a chocolate cake. I bake a lot to, you know, I call it research too, right? Because if I have a culinary cozy, I've got to have recipes in these books. So it doubles as research. But I found myself baking a lot during the pandemic. I was talking with Kelly and she's like, you should see these outtakes of, you know, these um, baking shows. And I started watching those and got an idea that, you know, oh, wouldn't it be fun if the protagonist didn't know how to bake, but had a bakery and has to try and figure these things out. Uh, speaking of baking, um, there was procrastinate baking, but research sounds so much better, right? <laughs> Um, of course, being a foodie uh, cozy or a culinary cozy, you've got recipes in the book. So who, who develops your recipes? So I get my recipes from a variety of different places. Um, usually they're recipes that I've used and adapted. So I'm not sitting here like, oh, I wonder what will happen if I throw some flour with some chocolate and pour milk in it and, you know, and heat it up at 500 degrees. But I'll try a recipe and maybe it's like, ah, it needs something or there wasn't enough sugar. There needs more vanilla or something. So, you know, just sort of tweaking and trying that way. But also I like to ask friends for recipes. So, I've hit up my friends. I think I've hit you up for some recipes. And um, our friend Cheryl Head has given me some recipes. And I love getting especially recipes from my culture as an African-American and things that I grew up eating. And it's not until, you know, some things you're just so used to eating and you don't realize until you start really talking about it that other people never had it. Or as different generations kind of pass on and you realize I, they didn't write anything down. No, <laughs> there's no written recipe for this anywhere. And you don't want it to, to die out. You want to know, you want this, this food that you grew up eating and enjoying to continue on. And you, you know, my mom was, she never cooked from a recipe and she wasn't the, she wasn't able to say, oh, you're going to put two cups of sugar or, you know, whatever. My mom would say, taste it and see what it needs. I'm like, I don't know what it needs. <laughs> and taste it and see if it's done. <laughs> so, you know, thankfully, my sister got some of those recipes. And 
So she figured out, oh, well, it needs more of this. And so what, you know, a few years ago, I went home to my sister, my mom's passed on now. And I went um, home for Thanksgiving. And my sister was cooking. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to watch you. And we're going to see how many cups of flour you put in that or, or how, you know, and it was a little frustrating for her because she just dumps stuff in and it's like, oh, I, I forgot. Um, that looks like it's about a half a cup. I, I don't know. So that's how I got some of the recipes. So it's a combination of a lot of different sources. Was she kind of like, get out of my kitchen by the end? <laughs> by the end, she was definitely ready for me to leave and did not want to do that ever again. <laughs> And I think other family members who are standing watching the pain were like, you know, you probably should just let it go. I'm like, I can't let it go. I've got a book. I got a deadline. <laughs> so. you, you kind of illustrated how um, culinary cozies uh, can sort of uh, help pass on uh, cultural traditions um, in addition to exposing people to uh, uh, new foods that they may not have, have tried before and um, sort of you know, broadening their, their culinary horizons while uh, helping preserve the past. And two part sugar, one part murder includes uh, recipes for zucchini bread, thumbprint cookies and apple turnovers. So any, any uh, backstories into, into those three particular recipes? <laughs> You know, I think that all um, all of those came out of, you know, being home a lot during the pandemic and looking. There used to be a bakery in um, Cleveland, Tennessee, um, where I um, would, would go for thumbprint cookies and everything was closed for such a long time. And, and I don't live in Cleveland, you know, but anymore. But, you know, you get a taste for something or you want something. And you just start looking through, I just start looking through Pinterest and trying to see what can I find or, you know, what do I have a taste for? Or, you know, you want that apple turnover, but you don't want to, you know, have to go out and put on clothes <laughs> and drive and be around people. You know, that I had a hard time with that during the pandemic. Like I, I didn't go to the grocery store and I didn't go anywhere. So, um, I certainly wasn't willing to go out and go to a bakery. So I tried things that I hadn't tried before and um, looking for easy, you know, tweaks to it. You know, some things I'm not going to spend, you know, 10 to 15 hours trying to, you know, make dough and, and do all kinds of, you know, so, you know, it's like, oh, I I'm sure I could just use some, you know, Pillsbury pastry dough and, and make this work and it's going to be just as, as good. So um, I think uh, the majority of those recipes in, in that book came from just being <laughs> stuck or, or home alone a lot um, with nothing but YouTube videos and Pinterest to, you know, occupy my time for a couple of years. I know. Uh, uh, going back to um to 
to dogs, another one of your your interests. Um, as as you mentioned, you are a dog lover. Um, you write a series about uh, dog clubs, uh, the dog club mystery series. You have two adorable poodles that you share on social media. Uh, your star in in this book, well, okay, Maddie's technically the star, but really it's Baby the Mastiff that's the star. So, <laughs> how did you decide on a on a on an English Mastiff as as the breed that you that your protagonist uh, inherits? So that was a combination of, um, you know, I love dogs and I look at a lot of different breeds and I wish I could have all of these, these different breeds. I want an English Mastiff. I want an old English sheepdog, a bloodhound, uh, you know, a standard poodle. I want them all. And reality is I can't have all of those dogs and, and I'm not really fit to, you know, deal with their personality types, right? So um, I get to live vicariously through my characters who can have these dogs. So two of my coworkers actually had English Mastiffs. And so they would show me pictures of their dogs and they would tell me stories about different things that their dogs got into. And um, so I got a lot of real life stories from them that I used. And sadly, both of their dogs have passed on. You know, that's the sad thing. The bigger the dog, the shorter their lifespan, they don't tend to live as long. And so both of those dogs were older when I started writing the book, but they've passed. And so to me, it's a great way of just sort of remembering um, these dogs that they had. And then also for me to get to experience life with these different dogs without actually having to own a 250 pound dog. <laughs> I can't, I don't know what I was thinking, you know, um, the thought of, you know, having a 250 pound dog. I mean, it just was mind boggling to me because I'm thinking, you know, I've got an eight pound and a 10 pound poodle. And <laughs> They're like, yeah, my dog's about 250 pounds. Last time it went to the vet and I'm like, what does it eat? And they're like, pretty much whatever it wants kind of, but you know, but it's like, well, in the morning, four cups of dog food. I'm like, four cups, both of my dogs together don't eat one cup. So it's just a lot of those things that I find fascinating. I don't know that I would want to have to, you know, deal with the reality of having a 250 pound dog that drools a lot, but I get to experience it a little bit for the time that I'm, you know, writing and, and for readers to get to know those, those breeds. And, you know, one thing I will say is I, I tend to include a lot of different breeds in, in my books. And I also try to incorporate a little bit of education because I think that people will see a breed on uh, maybe the Westminster dog show, or they'll see it on TV or they watch 101 Dalmatians with their kids and they think, Oh, I'll get a Dalmatian. And they don't realize the dog's personality is not suited for them and their lifestyle. And maybe, you know, if you're a person that you're going to be away from home a lot and this, breed of dog is really in the socialization and that dog's miserable. And, um, or, you know, I used to be much more actively involved with 
dog competitions and I showed in obedience and agility. And so I was involved with a lot of training and we did therapy work. And I remember my obedience instructor talking about how people would come to her and they bought a border collie because they've heard about how smart border collies are. And then they come and they're like, but I need you to get it to stop staring. It's like, yeah, no, it's not going to do that. That's what they do. (laughs) They're going to stare and they're going to try and hurt you. And they need a job. And if they don't have a job, they're going to get in trouble because they're very smart and their minds need to be occupied. And and so people buy these dogs and they think, oh, I'm going to have this in my little tiny apartment in New York City. And it's not going to be a good fit. So I also, you know, will try to educate a little bit. So hopefully people know maybe this breed, you know, it's a little stubborn or, you know, yeah, if you don't like drool, don't get an English Mastiff because they're going to drool. Vicarious drool is always better than real drool because you don't have to clean up vicarious drool. Exactly. So read a book about a dog. Don't get a dog just because you saw, you know, 101 Dalmatians and you think they'd be cute. You know, read a book about a Dalmatian. The, the other thing that's fun to do vicariously is uh, experience uh, Maddie's uh, high-end fashion. You know, the the, the Louboutins and the, uh, the designer clothes. Um, because th- those things are, are gorgeous um, and they have uh, the, the price tags to prove it. Uh, so uh, tell us about your, your research into Maddie's character and you know, how, how you decided on which designer brands she was going to be uh, gramming. And, and did your research include any good shopping trips? Oh, my gosh. I wish I could afford Maddie's lifestyle. So interestingly enough, my, my nephew and his wife, Um, Both live in New York City, and they're both in the fashion industry. So I um, asked, you know, I called my nephew and his wife, and I'm like, hey, I need, um, who's the current, you know, designer? You know, I have her wearing, you know, Prada. And he's like, yeah, that's uh, last year. (laughs) (laughs) I long to own one of those bags. And he's like, yeah, no. And, you know, my nephew takes me through like 20 questions. How old is she? Is she educated? Does she do this? Does she do that? And I'm like, well, yes, no, I don't know. I mean, it's fiction. Come on. So she could if I write it that way. And so, you know, he's like, well, if she's in her 20s, then she would wear this. It's int- I just finished you know, the second book in the series. And I'm like, okay, so what kind of blacks would she wear? You know, he's like, she wouldn't. I'm like, wait, (laughs) she's, she runs a bakery. She's standing on her feet all day. She's not going to be in four inch heels, you know, standing in a bakery. And he's like, well, then she would wear tennis shoes or she'd wear. And so, you know, she'd wear Pierre Moss sculpts. I'm like, Okay, so I just saw the cover art not that long ago for the second book, and she's got on Pierre Moss sculpts. And I'm like, okay, give me a name for some blue jeans that she would wear, right? And he's like, okay, so between he and his wife, they've given me, you know, I I remember I was writing a scene, Maddie gets dressed up to go out to dinner, and I'm like, okay, give me a designer 
that you would recognize their um, outfit. You would know who the designer is just by looking at it. And my niece said, Alea, or I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, but I'm like, okay. And I Google it and I'm like, okay, so what are the things about this? And she starts telling me about this outfit and I'm looking at it and I'm like, is, is that, does that say $15,000? <laughs> well, all righty then, sure she'll wear that. That's the closest I'm going to get to that kind of gown, right? So I can live vicariously through Maddie's clothes as well and her shoes and her purses, her Telfar purses and all of her um, fashionista tendencies. I get to, you know, enjoy that in the books. Because my reality is going to be a lot different. Please have a character in one of your books say Prada is so last year. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to aggravate Prada. So, if, <laughs> but yeah, that's what my nephew said. So I'm like, okay, so what about perfumes? And he's telling me, and I, so I learned a lot about design. They are, you know, definitely working at a different level than me, right? They're, they're at the halt culture where, you know, you've got designs that are, you know, you couldn't really wear to work, but they make a statement on a, a runway. So I try to incorporate some of that into Maddie's personality. But I think over the course of the book, you're going to see that as she lives in a small town, a really small town in Southwest Michigan, you know, that that lifestyle that she had that was perfect for her in L.A. is not necessarily going to fit in in New Bison, Michigan. Well, speaking of New Bison, Michigan, uh, tell us tell us some more about it. I'm I'm assuming this is a fictional town, so you know. So what what sort of went into creating something that was very much not L.A. but was still a place that um, you know actually sounds like an interesting place to live. <laughs> so I lived in southwestern Michigan for a number of years, and there is a town a town called New Buffalo, Michigan. That's not very far from my, um, my home. And it is a kind of resort, sleepy little town. It's on the shores of Lake Michigan. And it's close enough to Chicago that a lot of um, wealthier Chicago residents have homes, lake homes, because you can't really afford you know, lakefront property in Chicago, unless, you know, you want to spend millions of dollars. But New Bison just, or New Bison, New Buffalo, just down the road, you could, it was much more affordable. So one of the things when I lived in the area that we heard a lot of complaints are these people from Chicago who are coming in, who are buying up all of the lakefront property. And then suddenly properties that were maybe, um, 100, 200,000 are $900,000. And it's, you know, but it's just, you know, a sliver of land with a shack on it. But, you know, if you come from Chicago, where real estate was much more pricey, then, you know, you can see how that happened. And I think that kind of 
um, is also a theme in this book is, you know, you've got these developers who are trying to buy up this land in New Bison to um, with Chicago or big city developers coming in. And so that's what her great aunt Octavia was against and did not want Maddie selling that land in the house and the bakery, but wanting to preserve that small town lifestyle that made that community special. Speaking of the Midwest, you know, um, that this is obviously a very special community that uh, your characters are living in. Uh, but, you know, a lot of folks don't realize that African-Americans currently live in the Midwest, but have been living in the, the Midwest for centuries, you know, centuries. Uh, I had yeah. something to say, is America, is America old enough to say centuries yet? Yes, it is. We've been here for more than 100 years. So um, yeah, tell, tell us a little more about uh, Midwestern African-American culture. You know, it is, um, you're very right in that I think a lot of people did not or don't realize how many African-Americans have lived in the area for such a long time. And one thing that I learned from um, growing up in that area, you know, part of my family, my parents were both born in the South and they grew up in the segregated South. And, you know, during the migration where a lot of African-Americans moved from the South looking for um, manufacturing jobs, moved to the Midwest. So there was that, but also well before that was part of the Underground Railroad went through a lot of the areas in that Southwest Michigan. And so some of the communities in um, that I became aware of when I lived in that area have substantial um, Black populations because they, their ancestors kind of stopped off there, you know, and didn't continue on towards Canada. But they, you know, so there are communities there that have been there for a long time. And I learned a lot about that when I was living in the area. And I found it fascinating because, you know, you, you go to this small town and you wonder, how did any black people find, you know, New Buffalo, you know, Michigan? It's just a tiny little town that has maybe 6,000 people. But, the, you know, when you like that's more than 10% of them are people of color. Plus there's another factor in that area of migrants. So that, that area of Southwest Michigan has a lot of um, farms and a lot of the migrant workers would, they had a path that they traveled from, you know, the South from Texas and they would move up as, you know, the different planting seasons um, progress and they would move up to um, Michigan when it was time for harvesting grapes. And so there is a large wine community. And that's another element that I bring out in the second book is the wine culture and the wine tasting and all of the, the wineries that are in that area. So, you know, you have um, Native Americans that were there um, from uh, 
there is a casino that I mentioned. I mentioned it in my um, mystery bookshop series. I also mention it because it is in New Buffalo, which in this book would be New Bison. Um, so it's there. And that is, you know, there was a, a large Native American community in reality. It's um, the Potawatomi Indians. And they got their designation from the government and they bought up a lot of land and built a casino. And so their members, you know, benefit from the casino. And then you have the blacks who came up through the um, Underground Railroad and established their communities there. And then also, you know, you had your migrants that maybe they decide they're going to stay in that area and not go back down, you know, to Texas or um, Mexico. You know, one one of the glorious things about books um, you know, in, uh, that I think sometimes people don't consciously realize is that uh, you know, we can read them. And in addition to being entertained by a good story, uh, you know, we can learn about things like uh, you know, different foods and, and history and uh, different dog breeds and, and which one is the, the best and all the insider secrets on which kind of uh, uh, clothes to wear. Uh, but you've also got little... Um, I'll call them Easter eggs in yours. Like there's a character named uh, Garrett Kelly and I'll leave it to people to figure out where that little (laughs) Easter egg came from. So uh, do do you, do you have fun peppering little things like that in, in your book that, you know, certain people get it right away um, and it'll, you know, give themselves a little pat on the back that they know what that's referring to. (laughs) I love it. I mean, it's just one of the joys of writing is, you know, being able to do things like that and maybe people get it and maybe they don't. I love doing research. And uh, if I don't watch myself, I will end up down that rabbit hole for hours just looking up little minute details that mean absolutely nothing to the readers or or anybody else. But, you know, I find myself down there. And then, of course, once I've spent a few hours looking up, you know, this details that I've got to put it in the book. And I think, oh, how interesting. And maybe people will get it and maybe they won't. So I'll tell you an interesting story. I was um, in one of my other books, my mystery bookshop series, I mentioned a woman named Virginia Hall. And, you know, I didn't, most people probably have never heard of her, didn't know anything about her, but she was during World War II, she was a spy. And the interesting thing about her is she only had one leg. And so the other leg was like a wooden leg. And, the she caused so the Nazis so much so many problems that they actually had a, a want list like she was on the head of the want list they're looking for this woman with this one leg and she had to escape Europe you know and actually walk over like mountain ranges to wow. get away from them with her one leg and the she called it Cuthbert so she had like a, a unique personality. And she would name her her wooden leg Cuthbert. But, you know, I just thought this is such a hilarious story. At least I enjoyed it. And so I just named a character Virginia Hall. And I was at a book signing and somebody came up to me and they said, you know, 
well, you know, people in DC, we know who, you know, Virginia Hall was. And I was like, oh, good. I'm so glad somebody gets it. So I think mystery readers will get the Garrett Kelly reference. And um, I'll just love dropping little clues and Easter eggs and, you know, tidbits in. And hopefully people will learn something and hopefully they will know that when I first started, I thought fiction was fiction. I didn't necessarily look at it as an opportunity to educate, but I think it really is an opportunity where you can learn. You can learn about other cultures, about other people in the safety of your own home. So if you've ever wondered about African-Americans and what a 20-something-year-old African-American woman is thinking, you know, then, you know, you can read and, and look up how Maddie's feeling. Or if you're curious about, you know, the, the foods and, you know, just different things that maybe you didn't grow up eating, but maybe you have a little curiosity about, you can read a culinary cozy and you can experience foods from other cultures and decide, do I like this? Do I not like it? Or maybe change your mindset. Maybe you had a, a mindset that all of these foods are exceptionally spicy or they're bad for you or, you know, they don't taste well or, you know, whatever your preconceived notions are, maybe you can expand your world a little bit and learn about other cultures and other people. <laughs> And there's there's another reference that you have in your book. There's a group nicknamed the Irregulars. I'm sure <laughs> mystery fans, or at least classic mystery fans, will also uh, uh, know what that's referring to. So, and and you've you've in other books, uh, you know, Agatha Christie's been a, a recurring theme. And so, now how do how do classic mysteries influence your very modern story? Oh my God, I am a huge Agatha Christie fan, and I. I think she, I credit Agatha Christie at getting me started down this path of wanting to be a mystery writer. I just devoured the books when I was young. And so I want to include just different references to, you know, people that I respect a lot. So, you know, Agatha Christie, Rex Stout, I, I had a, um, one of the dogs in one of my dog club series named Agatha and I called her Aggie. Um, I know you're a fan as well because you have yes. a cat yes. named Agatha. I do. Named after Agatha Christie. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, obviously the irregulars, you know, the, the great aunt Octavia um, was Octavia Baker. And, you know, I named, so the Baker Street Irregulars is a reference, obviously, to Sherlock Holmes. And so, you know, I love just incorporating those things that I love about mysteries into my current day mysteries, because, you know, it is a, a group of people who are a little, you know, somebody that I don't want to say a regular in an you know, that there's something wrong with them type of way, but a regular in that they're not your typical sleuths. They're not the people who would traditionally be going out and tracking down, you know, clues and, and figuring out crime. So they're doing their thing just like the, the irregulars that um, Sherlock Holmes would tap into. 
And, you know, they're not young kids who are going out and doing things, but they have their methods. And I tend to go with a little bit older, you know, group than, than using kids, <laughs> you know, but I hope that readers will um, enjoy seeing those references to things that are um, common, you know, that kind of, I think, link mysteries from, you know, 70 years ago to mysteries today. I think there are a lot of similarities. I think that, you know, you, you basically, you've got a dead body, you've got a sleuth, you're trying to find. So there's a lot of similarities between those classic mysteries and maybe using some of those same themes and trying to put a, a more modern spin on it. Obviously, you know, um, Agatha Christie, they didn't have cell phones. So some of the things that Maddie does with cell phones, you're not going to see in a, in a classic Sherlock Holmes mystery. So taking something that, you know, worked well, you know, that long ago, man, it could be like a hundred years ago. And trying to say, okay, now how can I rethink that? How can I repurpose it? How can I, you know, connect those two things? Now, you should have plenty of experience making these connections because you write a culinary series, a bookshop series, a dog club series, and a series about a private investigator. So that's four different series. So how do you, how do you manage that many? You know, I... I think the the thing is, while you're writing, you spend so much time with these characters in your head. You're like thinking about them. How would they respond? How would they act in these different situations? It's like you're so immersed in these characters that after three or four months, I'm sick of them. <laughs> like when this book is done, I'm like, I don't want to see or hear from these people anymore. I just need to be free. And, but I also know myself and I know that if I give myself a vacation, like if I take time off, I cannot get back in the rhythm of things. It will take me a long time to get back into it. I'm like, you know, I'd much rather watch TV or I'm going to read for pleasure. I'm going to do all these things that I kind of push off when I'm writing. So when I finish a book, I'm ready to move on to another group and it keeps me writing but it gets those people out of my head. So I can finish one and I move on to the next one. And then I'm immersed in their world for, you know, four months, five months, however long it takes me. And then I'm sick of them and I'm ready to move on and I can move on to my third series. I tend to write like three series at a time. And then I, um, when I'm done with that one, then I'm ready to go back and I start thinking about the first series again. And I'm like, oh, I wonder how Nana Jo would respond in this situation. Or, you know, it's time to, you know, talk about um, RJ and Mama B. And so it keeps me writing constantly and I don't get those long lapses. But if I take a month off, man, I, I might as well have taken three. Cause if I take a month off from writing, then I can't get back into that swing of 
of writing again. So I have to keep writing. I write like I try to write every day. I try to write a thousand words a day. And, you know, once I have the first draft done and I go back and I start revising and go through like a couple of passes with revising and then I'm like shoot that off and I'm ready to do something else. So it's more just it helps me to stay focused so I can write by having different people to write about, different characters, different um, worlds. Well, I'm, I know your fans will be delighted to hear that you are writing constantly. Uh, <laughs> so what's, and, and you, you've, you've given us a couple hints. So what are you writing next about uh, Maddie and her, her Louboutins, or her, her <laughs> stickers by that high-end Sculpt. designer that I've, <laughs> sculpts. Obviously, yeah. I'm not wearing sculpts because had, that's, that's new to me, but um, I'm going to look them up after this just to see what they Oh like. my God, $700 <laughs> for a pair of tennis shoes. I'm like, really? Okay. Interesting. So um, the second book in the series um, is Murder is a Piece of Cake. And um, I just finished that and sent it off and my publisher gave me the thumbs up. So yay. Yay. (laughs) And um, so I'm under contract for three books. Hopefully they'll want more depending on how sales go. So um, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I did finish the um, Dog Club series. So um, that has five books. So, And I'm currently wrapping up the last of the RJ Franklin series. So there will be four books in that series. So I'm just uh, kind of tying up the loose ends on that one right now. And then um, I mentioned that I write, I tend to write like three series. So I've got my mystery bookshop series and the eighth book in that series um, will book clubbed to death <laughs> comes out <laughs> in December of this year. And right now I'm under contract for nine books. So there's definitely going to be one more Yay. after, after 2022. So fingers crossed, I'd love to be able to continue that series and um, see where Sam and Nana Joe go. And then um, I have my um, Maddie, the Baker Street mystery series. And then I'm actually going to be starting a new series. Ooh. I don't know if you knew this. Um, I have a new series that I'm going to be writing for Berkeley. And that one features <laughs> a bloodhound, so, <laughs> a bloodhound named Bailey. So again, I get to live vicariously through my character um, and experience life with a bloodhound. <laughs> and so where, where can readers uh, who are, I'm sure, more than ready to experience uh, life with a, a massive and, and baked goods. Uh, where can they uh, win in? Where can they buy a copy of Two Part Sugar, One Part Murder? So um, Two Part Sugar, One Part Murder will release on August the 30th. So not that far. And they can buy them pretty much anywhere books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes Noble, Apple, um, Nook, um, Hudson, every place um, you can buy it. Um, it will also be available in audiobooks, so I'm real excited about that. Um, I also I love when my publisher is able to um, 
do audio and large print. Um, my dad, it doesn't um, see as well to be able to read my books. So I never really thought about audio books being an aid for people who um, were sight impaired, but it really enables, you know, everyone to be able to experience books. So I love that and I'm um, real excited that it's going to be available in an audio book. So. Yes. And, and I'm, I, I'm a big proponent of, of books in, in any format. I mean, I, you know, exactly. read it, listen to it. At, hey, as long as you're buying it, I'm cool with it. Right. An advantage of audiobooks is you can eat baked goods while you're listening to it. So exactly, can, multitask. <laughs> yes, so eat baked goods while you're listening to a book about a bake shop and, a, and an English mastiff. I mean, you know, it's, life's perfect, right? Exactly. And, you know, the lemon zucchini bread, I highly recommend that one. I mean, it's a great way you're eating vegetables. So I count that as a vegetable, right? <laughs> there you go. It's yes. got zucchini in it. It's just <laughs> So all that zucchini that your neighbor or your coworker uh, brings in and, and dumps on you because they have too much of it, put it in lemon zucchini bread exactly. and enjoy it while you're enjoying your book about it's It's kind of, it's, it's, it's very meta, isn't it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and where can readers uh, connect with you to find out more about Maddie and your other series and keep track of, uh, you know, when, when new books are coming out and, and keep track of what you're up to, where can readers connect with you? So I think the, the best place is to go to my website, vmburns.com. And you will see links to sign up for my newsletter. And I have giveaways in the newsletter. Sometimes I put recipes and, um, also, you find out about my writing life. It's, you know, not that exciting, but <laughs> the poodles have more uh, interesting life. So I often have pictures of them on there and um, sometimes my niece and great niece. And so I think the vmburns.com is going to be the best place. And you'll see links to my other social media pages where you'll find out more. Well, thank you for joining me again, Valerie. Thank you. I always enjoyed chatting with you. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. My guest today was Valerie Burns, chatting about two-part sugar, one-part murder, the first Baker Street mystery. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Alexia Gordon, award-winning author and host of the show. Tune in next time for another chat with an author writing on the lighter side of crime. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.